Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. I'm Garth Haslam. In this episode, I'm interviewing a man that I had never met before until the date that we started talking. His name is Buck Hedges, and I met him in a, uh, in a Facebook group for men called Spherical Man. This is, uh, this is a man's group that very much uh, is intriguing to me because the concept with Spherical Man is, you know, we've got, we've got all kinds of options around us, and the idea is that it's okay to go after any or all of the things that we want to do. If we want to learn how to make knives, that's great. If we want to learn how to braid hair, that's awesome. You know, if we want to learn how to ride a horse or, or whatever it is, it's okay to be a man and say, you know what, I'm me and this is what I'm going to do. Doesn't really matter if somebody around the corner says that is or is not manly. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. And I admire that out of Buck and the rest of the of the men uh, in Spherical Men. It's definitely a group that, uh, like so many others that I interview from, that I admire and that I and that I certainly endorse. Buck is a salt of the earth kind of a guy. He's a he's a cowboy. He knows how to ride a horse. He he knows how to do stuff. He's a humble man, and. Because of that, you know, he, he's, he's learned some things and his life is not easy and he's got his own man issues and you'll hear about those, but good man. Welcome to Manalyzing where men talk about stuff that men don't talk about. Buck Hedges, I haven't, uh, I haven't met you until this moment. Tell me about you. I don't know what you want to know. Uh, I grew up on a ranch. Um, I grew up on a lot of ranches. The nearest one was about 50 miles from town, and the furthest was, I think, 108. It was 40 miles from the nearest paved road. Uh-huh. So I was homeschooled. Um, growing That's up, you know, we, I learned how to drive a team. Um, team of horses. Yeah. And then uh, when I got into college, I... I discovered computers and I really liked them. And now I work in IT and I've done a lot of things along the way. I've been a heavy equipment operator. I've been a medical courier. Um, I've been a mortician's assistant. I worked my way through college as a short order cook. You know, I can, I like to joke with my kids that I can go to work, build a website, come home, get on my horse and ride them just as well as I can build a website, turn around, drive a tractor. Uh, you know, Buck, you, I, I met you um, on a men's group on Facebook, and I was looking for guys to interview for Manalyzing. I told you absolutely nothing about Manalyzing other than it's a podcast, and that I was looking for men. And that was the extent of the information I provided. Why did you want to come on? Um, curiosity. And uh. I like the group that we're part of, and, you know, for me, if you're going to be part of something and participate, you need to speak up. The one that got me into it was Joshua Spray. Um, uh-huh. He and I met at a an adoption conference 
we just we really hit it off and he invited me to spherical man and I, you know what i'll try it and i really like the community i i like the guys that you know on the input and it's positive and man, in this day and age i'll take anything positive i can get definitely so i have my reasons for liking the spherical man group uh what are yours it's a chance to just be a guy you uh -huh. know and there's guys who go all different directions they're from all different fields but they're there just to relax to be guys to open up without being worried about, you know, getting dissed on or put down or mocked or anything like that. They have questions they can ask. It's like a safe space for guys. And, you know, in this day and age, I think men fall into two categories. They're expected to be the breadwinner, the provider, the defender of the home and hearth, the hero of their family, you know, stoic, tough, always strong. And at the same time, you've got society that, we talked about this in the message as we shared, you know, a, a lot of TV, they portray that the father of the family is, you know, he's kind of a dip and kind of dumb and the kids are the ones saving the day or mom has to clean up after him. And I think what that does is that teaches kids to disrespect their dad, you know, and the, the dads aren't worth that much. They're just there to provide a paycheck. And be in the way and be avoided and uh, be disrespected. Yeah. And, you know, to me, a dad is so much more than that. I look at it as a responsibility, and I, I kind of compare it to a brood bunch of horses. Uh, you have the stud, and he always walks behind. He's always off a little to the side, and it's not that he's subservient. He walks behind because he's keeping track of everybody. He can make sure everybody's there. He's the rear guard. Nothing's going to sneak up on him, and maybe it's too many years of moving cows, but when my family walks somewhere, I'm usually behind them because I can keep them all in line and keep sight of them and, you know, keep track of them. Well, that makes sense. You know, if a horse understands that, then hopefully uh, some of us human beings would understand it as well. It's hard to know what's going on if you're leading from in front. They might not even be following you. That's true. And, you know, when you have little kids, you want to stay behind them so you can kind of herd them all in the same direction. See who's about to fall over the rock or fall into the ditch or whatever. When I came up with the concept for analyzing, I was actually at a podcaster conference. I uh, I went primarily because a friend of mine uh, was going and he invited me, and I'm like, sure, I'll go with you. I was supporting him, and uh, people started asking me there, what's you know what's my podcast about? So I had to come up with it in a hurry, and it is my purpose and my passion now. But I, I found it interesting that as I was talking about, uh, you know, guys having issues too, um, there were a couple of the people that I talked to, women, uh, minority, one of them that comes to mind, who didn't even want to hear me talk about it. Uh, and, and I kind of figured that, that what she was, uh, you know, that anybody's response is you white males have nothing to complain about. You know, it's, it's us women, it's us minorities, you know, we've, we've got stuff and you don't get to have stuff because you're white males and you suck and you don't get to have an opinion or problems. She actually walked away from the conversation while I was talking about that and then came back when I was done. Now that's interesting because any woman will tell you that her husband or her sons or her brothers or her dad, or maybe all of them are broken. You know, maybe they've got a isolation complex. Maybe there was a bad divorce. Maybe he felt like he was a daddy ATM. Maybe he abused, maybe he had uh, alcoholism or drug problems, or maybe like in my case, he just wasn't around. And they will all tell you that. Yet at the same time, it's unusual for, for women or anybody, men included, to say, yeah, men, 
we have issues too, and we're better off dealing with them than not. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about what's hard for you. Speaking of which, you've uh, you've lived a few years. I'm guessing you're somewhere between twenty and ninety. I'm fifty two, fifty one. So you've been around the block. Tell tell me about what's been hard for you in your life. I was terribly shy growing up. And we moved to a school where it was a small town where everybody was related, was related and I wasn't. And, um, you know, back then you got bullied. That was just kind of the way things were. And so by the time I got to high school, I was antisocial. I mean, really antisocial. You know, over the years, I really tried to overcome that and, and develop charity for my health fellow man. And, and I've had a couple of experiences that where I've really gotten to see the good in people. And that helped a lot. But, you know, uh, some days I don't know if I'm the only one that ever feels that alone or if other people feel like that too. If other people feel like, uh, what is that again? Just, you know, even though you're in a crowd of people or you're in a family, you're, you're kind of alone. You're oh, nobody man. Gets you, nobody understands you. Or you're talking to a kindred spirit. You're not alone because you and I are two. Just to, to identify how I identify with that. Um, yeah, I was bullied in uh, in element or elementary a little bit and junior high a lot. Um, I ended up having to change the way I'd walk home from the bus because kids would get used to bullying me when I went one way, so I went the other way until the kids got used to bullying me that way, and then I went the first way again. And I yeah. became a bit of a serial liar because I figured that if it was associated with me, it must be stupid. Therefore, whatever I was going to say, I'd say something else that was a lie because I was trying to protect myself. So. Yeah, right there with you. I think a lot of our formative years are junior high and high school. And my biggest thing was was fear. And I think a lot of it was in my head. But, you know, I, I just made the assumption that nobody liked me. Everybody hated me. I was afraid of everybody. And so I got really good at being invisible. Mm-hmm. I can think of one time I'm actually in the high school yearbook. And when we moved further from town and I was going to be homeschooled, I didn't tell anybody. I just disappeared. And I reconnected with people on Facebook, you know, over the years and found out you know, a lot of that was just my perception of things. But still, you know, it, it changed how I, I acted. And then when I got into college, I made the decision I wasn't going to be afraid anymore. It takes a lot to overcome your fear. And I learned later on, you don't really live without fear. You learn to handle it. Courage is not being unafraid. It's being afraid and doing what needs to be done anyway. You know, I've done a lot of things that I didn't think I could ever do. And a lot of it just to push myself, you know, past my fear. What are a couple of the things that you did that you thought you could never do? Public speaking and, and going into politics. I've listened to politics since I was 17. And for a large part, it just ticks me off because I, I'm i a doer. If there's a problem, there's a solution, go do it, fix it, get on with life. And politics is a lot of everybody wants to speak their piece. And even when the solution is right there, they all want to talk about it. And I'm not that patient. One of my friends suggested I run for precinct committee chairman. And I did. And I got elected. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, working with our political party. And it's way outside my comfort zone. But it's actually been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of neat people. Going into computers, you know, I had no computer background, you know, really until I got into college. And I ended up as a walk-on in the top technical writing program in the country. I graduated on the dean's list. And, you know, I don't know everything, but the job I have now when I got it, the guy that hired me flat out told me, he says, I like to hire people from small towns and from rural areas. He says, they don't know everything, but we've got Google and we can teach them. He says, what they do have is a work ethic. And so I work for an IT team that there's seven of us that run all the computers in a company that covers the continent and we cover two thirds of it. 
Oh, well, I've got a few different businesses. Uh, my wife bought a cookie business. You know, we, uh, we, we hired somebody and gave her instructions to, to find the right people and then hire them. And we didn't really care. You know, obviously, if it's cookies, then you don't need much of a resume. And that manager then proceeded to do something completely different. She just hired her friends and half of them suck. But what we've, what we've found is, yeah, you, you hire the right person and you can teach the right person what to do, but you can't take the wrong person who will forever be the wrong person. And, you know, even if they've got the, the resume, they will continue to be the wrong person. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. And, and the job I have now, a lot of it is, you know, somebody will come to you with a problem and we have no idea what the answer is, but we're IT, so they expect us to know. And, you know, there are times where you have to man up and tell your boss something uncomfortable, like, well, I ripped the domain controller off the domain and crashed the domain for the entire newspaper. <laughs> um, <laughs> or explain to the publisher why Jabberwocky suddenly ended up as the lead story on their website when some a test story went wrong. Or, you know, things like that. But I've learned over the time that everybody makes mistakes and it's better if you face your fear and man up, tell people what happened and be honest about it than it is to try and hide it. Yeah, and it takes, you know, I think you're more likely to find a uh, that kind of a man in a country boy who uh, who's spent some time trying to figure out how to how to get that rock out of the ground or how to milk an ornery cow or whatever. Yeah, yep. I, I tell people that our IT team is the weirdest bunch of people you'll ever see because when they come to work, they're all about computers and they're pretty sharp. In their off hours, one of them likes to do cabinetry. One of them works on cars. One of them's a welder. One of them hunts and shoots every weekend. You know, I blacksmith and do martial arts. And, you know, if you expect us to be like the guys on the Big Bang Theory, we're not. Well, I used to play Frisbee with a bunch of nerds and, uh, and, and there is some big bang theory there. We just didn't have, we didn't have penny. We, we all wished for penny. We didn't have penny. You know, growing up that way, that's, that's hard for me. Uh, I spent a lot of decades after, uh, junior high and high school, not being comfortable around a man because, uh, all of those junior high years, if I saw a guy, chances were he was, uh, probably going to do something I didn't want him to do. You know, I had one or two friendships with men and beyond that, I'd hang around women. And it, it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe five years ago that I started allowing a dude to be my friend. I was you... terrified of girls. Yeah. I couldn't talk to him at all. Even I was yeah, I was 26 years old and I still could hardly talk to him. And I met my wife. She's the only person I've ever been able to relax around, you know, and just and just be myself. And she just accepts all my weird little idiosyncrasies. It's just, it's just the way it is. And, and she's okay with it. What's her magic sauce? What does she do to be non-threatening to you? When we first met, we were both pretty broke. So we didn't do a whole lot of traditional dates. We went on a lot of walks. It's kind of funny. I was working my way through school and I'd taken a year off and was working on a ranch. And she came up there on a field trip and my dad was the manager and we were supposed to have the barn cleaned out because all these kids were going to come go through and tour this big fancy barn. And we had a brand new coat we were playing with, so we didn't get it done in time because, you know, boys will never grow up. They're going to go put things off till the last minute, even when they're 26 years old. And uh, so we were trying to hurry and clean the barn and I scooped up a shovel full of horse manure and I heard voices and looked up. And there's all these kids, you know, well, not kids, they were my age, but they're all staring at me. And she was there and I'd, I'd seen her around college, but I hadn't had a chance to talk to her. And then uh, later on, I took a braiding class 
you know, rawhide and leather braiding class over the weekend. And she was in the class and I tied this really fancy knot and I saw she had tied it. I thought, this is my chance. So I untied my knot, went over and asked her if she could show me how to do it. And <laughs> she said, no. and then I asked her if she could give me a ride home. And she said, sure. And we just started hanging out after that. She told me one, one point, she says, well, I have a horse. And I thought, oh, she's going to have some, you know, broken down, sway back, ugly. All right, I'll be nice. She says, you want to go see it? Said, sure. So we went out to see it and we go into this field and I couldn't see anything because the weeds were so tall. And she called her and this really beautiful red roan horse came up. And I remember looking at the horse thinking, that is a good horse. I need to pay more attention to this girl. Later on that year, my grandpa ended up in the hospital and uh, in Salt Lake and I had no car and none of my roommates could take me down to see him. And I knew she was strapped for gas. You know, she was a college student. She had no money. And she says, I'll take you. And we drove all the way to Salt Lake and back. And, you know, she just, that's just the kind of person she is. If you need help, she's there. Congrats on that. Uh, how, how many years have you been married then? It'll be 24 on uh, next week. There, uh, there are times, you know, where this is, this is one of those issues that men have is I think we've, I, I at least feel underappreciated. And I know uh -huh. talking to my wife at times, she does too. So I guess it's endemic to either side, but you know, sometimes you get so wrapped up in work and everybody's trying to do all the things and get all the things done that, you know, you just feel like you're there to provide a paycheck or you're just, you're there to, you know, be the taxi or whatever. You're there to be utilitarian. And after that, get out of my way. I think, like I said, from talking to my wife, I know at times she feels like that too. And sometimes I think, you know, we just, we'll ditch the kids and take off, you know, take a drive somewhere, just the two of us. It takes work and we're working on it. So. Yeah. Oh, and especially when there's kids, it's easy to focus on the kids and not on each other. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of couples who, when the last kid is of age to move out, you know, somebody takes steps to keep them there because they're afraid that uh, maybe they don't like each other enough to hang out with each other after they're alone together. We try not to do that, you know, but. We still have kids at home, and it'll be a few years before the last one's old, old enough to leave. So you've you've pled guilty to feeling like, on occasion, it's uh, roommate syndrome, where you know, like you're doing your task, they're doing theirs. It's more like a team system than perhaps a loving relationship. Uh, I think you actually. My next question would be, how do you get past that? But I think you you might have answered that one. You get together and you go drive somewhere. Is that true? Have I gathered that correctly? I think a lot of it is time and it's not, you know, I, I'm not so much time in the formal dating sense of the word, you know, going on dates. She likes if I help with the dishes. Now she might rearrange how I do the dishes and, you know, reorganize me while I'm doing it because, you know, I'm 50 years old. Apparently I don't know how to do dishes. She appreciates the fact that I'm there helping her do the dishes. And we've tried to, you know, talk to each other and open up and say, you know, this is, this is how I feel. And this is, the problem of having, and this has just been in the last couple of years because I had to learn how to communicate, you know, and, and how to not blow up and how to, to really listen. So I, it's been a real growing experience for me. How to communicate, how to not blow up and how to listen. So in many of the podcasts we do, we talk about how us men are uh, trash compactors and, you know, if we got an issue, large or small, uh, you go through a list first, maybe you can talk to it about, you know, to talk to the wife about it, but usually not, you know, and especially if you're annoyed because she wants you to stack the dishes left to right rather than right to left. 
you're not going to go to her and say that annoys me that would just cause a fight then you're not going to talk to any other woman that's called an affair yep. and you're not going to talk to a man about that either that's lame you're, you're not going to talk to a man about dishes or pretty much anything else other than hey how about uh you know that football team so uh we stuff it down and we keep stuffing and uh, there comes a point where it comes back out like vomit at the wrong time in the wrong place with the wrong people around and i think that's what you just just described yep so you've learned how to communicate with her my wife has uh, gone to great lengths to try and teach me how to communicate and to some extent she's succeeded what did that look like how how did she you know whatever success level she's achieved or you've achieved let's give you the credit you know let's not just make all the women the heroes and the, and the men the, the the jerk faces this is your success too how did you do it if i say something i'll mean it one way but she might take an entirely different meaning from that and so we have to sit there and and try and you know figure out okay if i say i'm angry it might not really mean that i'm angry it might mean that i'm frustrated um, I'm frustrated because I'm afraid, you know, anything like that. And so trying to get her to understand what I actually mean and me try at the same time trying to understand what she actually means. Cliche that's actually true where when a woman says fine, you know, everything's fine. Oh, that's when you run. But, and there are so many layers of meaning in what fine is, you know, that it could be anything. And so it's trying to narrow down, you know, so that we're on the same page and that when I say, I need this. It doesn't mean I want this or it would. One one of the ongoing things we have is we have a hundred acre farm. Trying to run it on a budget where one parent works is kind of tight. And so when I tell her, you know, I need wood, it doesn't mean I want wood to build a project. It means if you want the corrals fixed, we need to find the money to get the wood to fix the corrals because I can't patch it together anymore. Try and understand where the other person is coming from. The trash compactor analogy is really good. I I actually started taking an anger management class online a few months ago. I I wasn't happy with the way I was treating my family and my kids, and I was felt like I was raging. Uh, I didn't feel I was raging around all the time. I'll be honest about it. And you know something had to stop. So I got online one night and I found a class on Allison.com, and it's just it's an amazing class. I'm loving going through it, and it's helped a lot. But a lot of it, he talks about, you know, we we feel rage, we have smashed expectations, we have disappointments, we have frustrations, we have people who cut us off on the road, and so on and so forth, and we stuff it all down, and it builds up, and then, like you said, it blows up, you know, always at the wrong time. And so what I'm trying to learn is, you know, how to, A, express what I feel accurately at the time. And B, when I get upset, how to deal with it. And part of that, you know, it's being honest with yourself. I'm 50 years old, and I'm going to tell you, I'm learning how to control my temper. <laughs> it's, um, and tell me if this is true for you. For me, it's when I shut my voice down. If I just shut up and do what she tells me to do, like a subservient slave, that's shoving something down. And it will come back up later. It does. And... One of the other things I've tried to learn is, you know, the signs of when you're getting upset. And it's different for everybody. For me, I don't know why, but I'll clench my left fist. That's one of the first signs that I'm just really frustrated. You know, if I can catch it there, 
and then figure out what the cause is and go work through it. It's a lot better than just letting it build up until it explodes. Another thing is to, uh, I guess, women compartmentalize things. And I've had to learn how to do that too. You know, I had a job once we did document layout and it was for college textbooks, really tight specifications. It was incredibly frustrating. And I had to teach myself that all the jobs I'd had before, I'd put in the extra time. If I was off work, I was still thinking about the web page I was building and how I could make it work. With this job, the minute I was off the clock, end of the job. And a good weekend is where I showed up on time Monday morning wondering what I did for a living because <laughs> I couldn't take all that stress home. It was just making everything miserable. Right. In a way, it's it's good to have a good work ethic, but it can also go the other way too, you know, where you're you're suddenly always working all the time to the detriment of your family. I worked with a guy who in a company where they really believe that families come first. And if you need to take time off for your family, why are you still in the office? It's not the most glamorous job. There, I'm sure there's jobs that pay more, but because of that culture, I love this job. And I love the guys I work with because of it, you know? And I know that at the same time, I've got their back and they've got mine. And, you know, it's just a job. If it doesn't get done because your family came, had something happen, the job's going to be there tomorrow and the problem will still be there and you can fix it then. But families come first. That's awesome. So you, what you're telling me is as a as an employer, you can actually pay people less because you create a corporate culture that is, I'm going to say, kind. And people want to be there um, because people want that kind of job. Yeah. I think I, I wish they'd pay more. Um, yeah. I think they deserve one, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's the culture that, that keeps people there, you know, and it's one reason they've had people there for 20, 30, 40 years. Well, that, that comes down to it. You know, every man's got to decide why he's uh, waking up in the morning. And if you're doing that for your family, then that means something. If you're doing it for your job, that means something different. Yeah. Um, hardest thing you've uh, you've dealt with in in your life would you say that was the bullying in junior high no uh that was one of the things that probably helped me turn into the person i am for good or bad uh hardest thing two things first was we had a little foster boy um from the time he was a month old until he was a year and a half old and the state health and welfare department failed their audit suddenly they decided to reunite him with his parents and we fought it with everything we had. I screamed from our congressman on down, and they took him away. It was horrible. Nobody in our house laughed for a month. Um, we were heartbroken, just crushed. Emotionally, it was the worst pain I've ever been through. You know, he's 19 or 20 now. I haven't seen him since he was a year old. And it's still, you know, there's not a day goes by that I don't miss him. So dealing with the heartache and then trying to forgive the people that were responsible, it's tough. You know, that was my family they took away. And I'm still working on trying to forgive them. You know, I don't actively think about, you know, how I'd like to pop one of them in the nose anymore. But I could probably be civil to them if I ran into them somewhere, but I don't know about anything else. So that's the, the hardest emotionally. Physically, uh, 14 years ago, 
Um, my oldest was a year old. Um, we had a gas leak in our home. And I got out of the shower one night, flipped the switch to turn on the fan. It lit the gas off and it flattened our house. Um, my wife was, she got blown clear. My little boy, the top, the ceiling came down and hit the arms of his toddler bed. And so he didn't get hurt too bad. I ended up in the ICU at the U of U burn unit for two weeks. There were so many things right that went right that night. I can't complain about it. I gave a talk once to somebody about it. And I think I counted up 25 little things that went right because we walked out of that. There was a sheriff's deputy that happened to be a mile away. He saw the flash and he, my wife was a dog catcher for our area at the time. And he'd actually been out there to help her. So he knew right where to go and came right to our house um, before they even were able to call 911. The explosion was so big. We'll, we'll start there. It, broke windows in a house a quarter of a mile away. It took our house and scattered it over an acre. People up to four or five miles away heard it. Um, it killed birds that were in the trees. It blew all the windows out of the car next to the house. And when everybody, all 800 people in McCammon called 911, it crashed the 911 system. So with one little flip of a switch, I did some pretty major accomplishments. <laughs> That's called making a difference. It, it, yeah, they upgraded the system after that. <laughs> uh, our driveway is a quarter of a mile long, and it was five feet deep in snow, and we had just had it cleared the day before. So he was able to run right up there. It would take forever to tell the whole story. But long story short, you know, he came up, and he was trying to pull me out, or he tried to lift the wall off that had fallen on me. And he burned his hands. He burned the top of his head. He laid his hand open on a nail. And he says, they're old lath and plaster walls, and they're stout. And he says, I can't lift the wall off. And I was scooting down because there were flames by my head. And I said, can you pull me out by my feet? And he says, I can't even see your feet. And he stepped down and stepped on my ankle. You know, just like that, right, as he said he couldn't see him. Uh -huh. And he grabbed me by the feet, and he yanked me out. And once I was out, I was motivated. I mean, I had just gotten out of the shower, and I was stark naked. Um Sarah had put my little boy, put our oldest boy in the snow, and uh, I picked him up and gave him a big hug. We had to climb over our fence to get out, and we realized later on that the power line for the house had fallen down across the fence. And we've been back and forth across that two or three times. Nobody got hurt. Um, wow. What did that do to you uh, uh, emotionally, psychologically? Uh, uh, did you blame yourself? No. What happened was... We our propane tank had been in, had, had run dry, uh -huh. and when the propane company came out and filled it, they were supposed to perform a pressure test. And I can tell the guy's thinking, you know, it was his last stop. He probably wanted to go home. He was in a hurry. He filled the tank. He left. He didn't do the test. Well, it leaked, and it filled up the crawl space and up the walls to the level of the light switch. I don't hold anything against the guy. I'm sure he didn't do it intentionally. I hope he's okay, but. You know, it could have been really bad. Yeah, that's one of those questions is, would you rather be, uh, you know, imagine a scenario where you've got a 16-year-old kid that runs over a two-year-old child. Would you rather be the parents of the two-year-old or the 16-year-old? It's pretty hard both ways. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that guy may be the one with the, uh, with the emotional baggage. Uh, which one was harder on you? I think losing our son was harder because... You know, with the whole explosion, 
I was grateful just to be alive. And I could look back and I could see all the things that had gone right, you know. And people in our community really pitched in to help us because we lost everything. I remember one of my neighbors showed up and he was a little shorter than I am. And he whipped off his, uh, he had a Utes jersey on, hockey jersey. And he whipped it off and gave it to me to cover up. And it came down, you know, just to below my belly button. I remember wishing he was really a little taller. <laughs> All the neighbors came up to help. And my, I decided when I was in the hospital, one of the guys I was named after was wounded in World War II. And he was in a hospital where they told him one guy out of 100 was going to walk out of here. And he said something along the lines of, I sure feel sorry for the rest of you because I'm the one. And when I was in the burn unit, I thought about that story and I decided I'm walking out of here. And so, you know, I had an attitude. I gave the therapist an attitude and she said, you know, okay, now do you want to hold my arm while you take a step? I walked out of the explosion. I can walk now. Fell flat on my face, you know, but that attitude is what kept me going. And I think it's one reason I recovered Uh, that, you know, and and being positive, being grateful with our foster son, you know, I I loved him with everything and he's gone. It's kind of like the parents who've lost a two-year-old, you know. They're just gone, and, and and there's nothing that can can fix it or bring it back. That's rugged. Yeah, I can't yeah, imagine how rugged worse. that is. You know, and and it seems like life is hard for everyone. I uh, I I've interviewed guys who, um, you know, one I mentioned who has cancer. This is uh, she. Uh, his wife has cancer. Uh, this is her fortieth chemo and radiation treatment that just happened today. Uh, and, and, you know, I could go on. She's the only person that, uh, that really knows him in his life. Uh, or you talk to the guy who maybe he was a cop and he did, uh, addiction and, uh, and human trafficking. And so every day for him was a horror fest. And so he turned to Jack Daniels as his way of dealing with things. Uh, everybody has hard, really hard. And, you know, this is your version of hard. It's, I talked to another guy, speaking of having your dad title uh, stolen from you, um, who got a divorce, and now his kids are calling the other guy dad, and he takes that right out of the center of his heart. He's like, my kids think somebody else is their dad now. Uh, you know, I could tell stories all day long about how it's hard and it's really hard for me to, to decide who's got it hardest. And maybe it's, maybe the pain is, is the same. I don't know, but we've all got hard. So here's my question for you. We've established that you losing your kid because he was yours, uh, was unimaginably unimaginably hard i i don't know how a person i don't know how to survive what you've described how was that a blessing to you i love the time i have with him he was the most special little guy you know his first word was was dad dada and his second word was hat because i was wearing my cowboy hat and he was just he was my little shadow and i loved every minute you know i think i always knew in the back of my head that there's always a chance, even though you're hoping there's not, there's always a chance he's going to be taken away. And so I really tried to treasure every moment with him. 
you know, those are some of my happiest memories of just packing him around and, you know, taking him for his first horse ride, giving him a little hat of his own to wear and just playing with him and the way he'd pull himself up on a, the baby gate, you know, and bang on it and yell my name until I'd pick him up when I got home from work and, you know, just really treasure those things. If I learned anything from that, it was to really to treasure the time you have with with the people you love. Um, and I'm still working on the try and forgive part. And then I learned a little about politics. You know, all our boys are adopted. And it was a year later we got our oldest boy. When we came to pick him up at the hospital, the social worker gave him to me and I held him for a little bit and fed him and changed his diaper and, you know, and I handed him to his mom. And I remember telling the social worker, I said, all right, here's the deal. I said, the first time anyone crawls out of the woodwork and says they might want to raise a kid, I said, the first time my wife goes, has to call health and welfare and goes 24 hours without them returning her phone call. I said, the first time she goes in there because they didn't return her phone call, the first time I go in there because they didn't return, return her phone call, I said, the first time they don't smile when she walks in there. I said, the first time anything happens that I don't like, I said, you remember, lady, I screamed from the governor on down last time. This time I know how the game is played. And she said, okay, that's why we picked you. And I said, all right. You know, I just, I was super defensive about it. So I learned, you know, a little bit more about politics in a really unpleasant way. I really don't think about that as much as I think about, you know, what a great little guy he was and how I hope he grew up to be a, a great man. You have any contact with him now? Um, my wife is still friends with his birth mother on Facebook. I guess she's not very active on Facebook, so we haven't seen him very often. You know, I've seen a few pictures of him over the years when my wife has showed me, but no. I keep hoping someday, you know, he'll come walking down the driveway, but I don't know if it'll ever happen. Yeah, that's that's rugged. I can identify you and with you in in one way. You know, I when my divorce happened, my girls were what uh, fourteen, ten, and twelve, or twelve and ten ish, and um, I'd had a routine where, you know, I'd go to work, I'd come home. Uh, the, the drive, of course, the commute was horrible. And then the last part of it, uh, was on city roads that were poor at best. So the last few miles were Chuck hole city. And so by the time I got home, I was first used up and then finished off by that last section of miles. So I came home and I just wanted to do nothing, you know, read the paper. And there, that was back in the day when there actually was a paper. And my girls would say, Daddy's home, and they'd want to play with me. And I'm like, give me a minute. I just need to have some zero time. And then uh, usually that turned into, you know, everybody went on about their business, and there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any more Daddy's home happy expressions anymore. And then the divorce happened, and then there wasn't any more. I, I guess I, uh, I identify with you in that way. Uh, because you you never know how precious those moments are. They seem pretty routine until they're gone. If you let's give you a time machine and uh, you can send yourself back to to any part of your life and talk to a younger version of you, uh, what age would it be 
And what would you tell that guy? I think I would go back to where I was about fifth grade, sixth grade, nine or 10. And uh, tell myself to stand up to Chris Sanders and just fall off and flatten him. Probably get the snot beat out of me at the time because I wasn't very big back then. But, you know, it would have changed the way I felt about myself and it would have changed the way he treated me. And that would have gone, I think that would have cascaded into, you know, other things. I tell myself not to be afraid. That was that was the biggest thing was, you know, I've spent a lot of my life trying to overcome the things I'm afraid of. Yeah, I think that's that would be the one thing I would change. Go ahead and hit him. I have to agree with you there. Maybe not just hit him, but, you know, stand up to him. Don't huh. hide. Uh, right. Let go of the anger I felt towards everybody that most of them probably didn't deserve and weren't even aware of. And, you know, don't hide. Isn't that true? You probably had uh, one or two or three or four people that probably deserved to be smacked in the face. But uh, you and I treated everybody like they were dangerous. Yep. And even that made the world the worst place. It did. And I used to, you know, it was the 80s and ninja were cool. And I, I perfected the art of being invisible. I, you know, I had knew every place at school that I could eat lunch and nobody could find me. Um, you know, I had a few friends, but all in all, I just, you know, sometimes I just go off by myself and just disappear. How do you feel about being invisible now? Do you, uh, is that something that, that bothers you now uh, when you, when you find yourself invisible or do you still not mind being invisible? Sometimes it does, you know, at work, uh, we have two web developers, me and one other guy. And I've been there four years. The other guy's been there not quite a year and people will come up, walk right past me and say, Hey, I need this fixed. Dustin to the other guy. It's like, why don't you come to me? I'm right here. And I was the one that, you know, built the whole site. So you know, in that sense, it's kind of annoying, but uh -huh. there are times where it's useful. Uh, you know, if I want to to learn something, really learn what's going on, being able to just watch and observe without drawing attention to myself is really handy. But there are times where I wish people would notice me more. I'm one of those people that my voice only carries about three feet. And so people think I mumble a lot and I think I'm yelling and, you know, it's, it's just kind of the way it is on the whole. I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way I am. You know, I can be invisible or I can be loud. I either way. Most of the time when you're invisible, you're okay. Or at least part of the time when you're invisible, you're okay being invisible. Yeah. I, I prefer just, you know, say grocery shopping, go and get my stuff and leave. Just, you know, do my own thing without any drama. But, you know, yeah, sometimes it's nice to have people notice I'm there. Well, consider that a gift. For me, um, one of my, uh, what is it, Gallup strengths is, you know, of course, communication is high among my strengths, but also significance. And even though that's a strength, man, what a curse. And it's probably got a lot to do with why, uh, why I hang around with microphones a lot is, uh, is I need my voice to be heard. And uh, for me, significance is uh is huge and if i'm not feeling significant then i feel very less than uh so 
you know, I look at people like you who can do a podcast and who can talk or uh, a stand-up comedian. I would love to do that. I think that's the neatest thing in the world to be able to do that. I can't tell a joke to save my life. I've tried. I've given talks in church and I'll make a joke. And I actually had somebody come up the last time and say, you know, not everybody gets your sense of humor, but I do. Nobody laughed. I had somebody tell me I was a good straight man once, and that was about it. I just, you know, I could never be a stand-up comedian, but I think it would be neat to do. Yeah, I I can't remember jokes long enough to tell them, so I will never be a comedian either. Yeah, no memory. Well, it's um, it's it's something that I enjoy doing. I uh, I I did radio in high school, and apparently that stuck because as soon as I was successful enough to get some spare nickels. Uh, it seemed like microphones started flowing my way and you know, we all, we all do what we love. I, I don't have the opportunity to do horses like you do, but, uh, but microphones, I can, I've, I've got one or two of those. Buck, I really appreciate your time. Um, we, the groups meet once a month, just depending on when the guys can meet. Okay. So, yeah, we'll be more in touch on that. But as I'm inviting you, I'm also inviting everybody else who who listens. Uh, we all have hard, and our hard is different, but we all have hard, and um, it's good to be able to talk to somebody about it. Buck, I, uh, I very much appreciate your time and, um, you know, and your vulnerability, your willingness to come on to a, a uh, podcast show that you don't have any idea what it is. That's, that, I think that's called bravery. Hey, thank you for listening to this Manalizing podcast. I appreciate it. You know, I don't go hunting for men with big stories and big issues to deal with. I find that pretty much any man that I talk to, he's going to have a story. If you're inspired by what you hear, here's my invitation. Join us. Join Manalizing. Manalizing.com. Lift and be lifted. Help other men and allow other men to help you. Let's do this together. We look forward to meeting you. Manalizing.com.